This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our program is made possible with the support of our members and friends. If you'd like to make a donation or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that one can aid their own understanding of a Dharma talk, or Taisho, if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Good to see everybody. So this is one of the smallest groups we've had in the Zendo in quite a while. It was nice to do the indoor keening that way, you know, to try it, stay warm as well. So we're going to take up a koan today. Uh, this is from, it's a, a koan I spoke on not too long ago, but I'm going to take a different angle on it. That's the beauty of some of these koans is you can just go in all kinds of different directions. This is uh, from the Blue Cliff Record, the Hekigan Roku, case seven. And I'll start with this time, I'll start with um, Master Engo's introduction, and I'll also share uh, Secho's verse, as well as the main case. So the introduction starts like this. The one phrase before the voice cannot be transmit, transmitted even by the thousand holy sages. If you haven't become familiar with it personally, it is as if you are 3,000 worlds away from it. But even if you haven't have attained what is before the voice and cut off the tongues of all people under heaven, you are still not that bright. Therefore, it is said that the sky cannot cover it, the earth cannot hold it, empty space cannot contain it, and the sun and moon cannot illuminate it. Where there is no Buddha, and you alone are called the honored one, then for the first time you are touching it a little. If you haven't reached this stage yet, you must thoroughly realize it by the tip of a hair and emit a great light in all directions. You must be completely free concerning the Dharma. Then, no matter what you take up, there will be nothing that is unfitting. But tell me, what is attained that is so extraordinary? Um, <clears throat> oh, there's one more part. Does everyone understand? No one wants to talk about the sweating horses of the past. They only want to emphasize the achievement that crowns the age. Leaving this matter aside for the moment, what about this public case? Look into what's written below. So here's the main case. A monk asked Hogan, my name is Echo. I ask you, what is Buddha? Hogan said, you are at show. End of case. And then Secho's verse on this case. In the land of the river, the spring wind hardly blows. The partridges sing deep among the flowers. At the three-tiered waterfall where the waves are high, carps turn into dragons and soar up to heaven.
Fools still look for it in the pond water in the dark. So quite a introduction in case. Uh, so one of the things as I was sitting with this koan this morning um, and, and thinking back to our workshop yesterday, we had an introductory workshop, uh, this word practice came to mind. We use it quite a bit. You know, we talk about chanting practice and sitting practice and walking practice and integrating practice into our life and eating practice, working practice. And as I thought about that word, it it kind of stood out that we we might want to be a little careful about that word because it could it could if we're not careful have this subtle distinction. Um, that this division that can take place in our minds, um, like, you know, this is practice, which is different from our life. You know, we're practicing for something. Um, like, you know, practicing for a soccer game, you know, or practice, you know, the dress rehearsal, we're practicing, practicing for a test. And of course, this is not the case, right? Practice is itself life. This is it. This is, this is the whole thing right now. This is the performance, you could say. You know, it's, it's like there can be a feeling, at least in my own life, there has been at times a feeling like we're waiting for the performance to begin. Like we're waiting for our lives to begin. Right? And so we, I think we could all benefit from examining how is it that we are waiting? Waiting for the real thing to happen. For the conditions to be ripe, for enlightenment to strike, for us to get it right. And this is not just a, a thought, or but it's it's it, it's if we search in ourselves, we can often find it in our bodies, how we're waiting, how we're holding, like in the body, in the mind, how we're holding. And so yesterday, in this introduction to Zen workshop that we have occasionally, um, it was a great group of folks, um, covered many different topics. And one of the topics that always, I think, is valuable to cover is how to practice at home. You know, how to begin a Zazen practice and I think two weeks ago was that I spoke about, before our Sangha meeting, I spoke about the importance of Sangha practice, of practicing here at the center, or relying on Sangha uh, for support and for inspiration, for very practical things like sitting partners. Um, and yet, you know, after the workshop and in taking up this koan, it 
became somehow what became important was finding um, in developing our own practice, our own self-reliant practice. You know, sometimes it's just that our supports aren't there, right? They're not available. Our spouses, for example, or partners could care less about our practice, right? Our friends have better things to do. Our kids don't want to hear about it, of course. And so it's really up to us in the end to develop our practice. As I spoke about a couple weeks ago, uh, in, in terms of Sangha, it was about taking refuge in Sangha. We could talk about that in many ways, but one of the things that came up after that talk was we can come to believe that taking refuge in Sangha means to be depending on the Sangha, dependent on the Sangha, on others. And I, I think there's a big important difference between depending on the Sangha and taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. You know, taking refuge means that we give ourselves wholeheartedly to what we are taking refuge in without reservation, without defense, right? But dependence is something very different. In, it, it means, dependence more or less means that when it's not there, it ceases to function. Right there. And, and I think this is the experience of many people that when they're not um, somehow compelled by others or something, um, it's very difficult for them to establish a regular sitting practice by themselves at home, to take it up, to keep it going. You know, I think of like how often, um, you know, in my own practice, it would only be digging into my colon right before doksan, for example, you know, waiting, uh, sort of using that, um, the structure of doksan to, to somehow get the fire going underneath me. At times we have to rely on these things, but a practice that is dependent on these, or for that matter, anything, dependent on anything, is still pretty fragile. And this is why, you know, when we talk about practicing with the breath, which we do in the workshops, um, it's important because what that's communicating to people is that there's really no excuse not to practice because you, you have it anywhere, right? You don't need anything special. There's no bell you have to carry around or garment you have to wear or really anything. You can always drop into it anytime, anywhere. It's there. Like now, as we're listening. This self-reliance, this building the self-reliance reminded me of a passage from a book that I read from in Sashin, I don't know, maybe a couple years ago. And it's, um, it's 
a great book. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's called uh, Novice to Master, an ongoing lesson in the extent of my own stupidity. And it's by, a, um, um, I think he's deceased now, Soko Morinanga. And he was a Rinzai Zen uh, teacher, Japanese Rinzai Zen teacher. And so I want to read um, the preface if I could. He says this, uh, a while ago, I gave a public lecture at the university. The speaker who preceded me talked for about an hour and a half running over his allotted time. The break period between our talks was shortened and I called to the podium right, or I was called to the podium right away. Concerned for the audience, I openly, I opened by asking, did you all have time to urinate? <laughs> Apparently this was not the, uh, not what the audience had expected to hear. Perhaps they were particularly surprised because the person standing before them talking about pissing was a monk. Everyone broke into heavy laughter. Having started out on this note, I continued to drive home the point. Pissing is something that no one else can do for you. Only you can piss for yourself. This has really broke them up and they, had la they laughed even harder. But you must realize that to say you have to piss for yourself, no one else can piss for you, is to make an utterly serious statement. And then he tells this story. Long ago in China, there was a monk. During his training years, he practiced in the monastery of Dawi. But despite his prodigious efforts, he had not attained enlightenment. One day, this monk's master ordered him to carry a letter to far, the far-off land of Changsha. This journey, round trip, could easily take half a year. The monk thought, I don't have forever to stay in this hall practicing. Who's got time to go on an errand like this? He consulted one of his seniors, another monk. This other monk laughed when he heard of this other monk's predicament and said, even while traveling, you can still practice Zen. In fact, I'll come along with you, he offered, and before long, the two monks set out on their journey. One day, while the two were traveling, the younger monk suddenly broke into tears. I've been practicing for many years, and I still haven't been able to attain anything. Now, here I am roaming around the country on this trip. There's no way I'm going to attain enlightenment, he lamented. When he heard this, the senior, thrusting all of his strength he had into his words, put himself at the junior monk's disposal. I will take care of anything that I can take care of for you on this trip, he said. But there are just five things I cannot do in your place. I cannot wear your clothes. I cannot eat for you. I cannot shit for you. I cannot piss for you. And I cannot carry your body around and live your life for you. It is said upon hearing these words, the monk suddenly awakened. And then he ends this passage by saying, I hope that as you read this, you will realize that I'm not just talking about myself or something that happened elsewhere. No, it is about your own urgent problems that I speak of.
I remember going to my teacher in Doksan one time and really complaining to him about how difficult it was for me to find the motivation to practice and out of outside of formal sittings and how hard it was. I was living at the time with my parents back at my parents' house and I had strategically placed my Zafu right by my bed uh, facing the built-in dresser that was a part of the bed. And despite that, I, I would wake up and go to bed and I would practically trip over my cushion, but I wouldn't sit. And I, so I was telling this to my teacher um, and how, how, how um, difficult it was, how, how much of a real struggle that was for me. And so as I was lamenting, um, he, he sort of was just listening compassionately and agreeing, kind of nodding his head like he got, you know, he understood the problem. And then he said, it sounds like quite the problem you have. And he says, what are you going to do about it? And that was all he said, rung the bell. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? And then I thought to myself, is that all you're going to say? <laughs> is that all you're going to offer me? Is that, you know, this sage wisdom? Where's the, you know, where's the practical advice there? But that's all he said. And somehow here I am. You know? No one can do this practice for us. And it's difficult. And so in Ango's introduction to this case, he says, the one phrase before the voice cannot be transmitted, even by the thousand holy sages. If you haven't become familiar with it personally, it is as if you are 3,000 worlds away from it. Right? No matter how much support we have, no one can do this for us. So this, he says, the one phrase before the voice. Of course, this is talking about our essential nature. It can't be given. It can't be explained. It can't be transmitted. You know, it's like, it's like the taste of tea. The taste of tea can't be explained. It can't be transmitted. It can't be conveyed by the thousand sages. Right? Save one. So who is the sage? Who is the only sage that can transmit anything? Who is it? So Ango says, if you haven't become familiar with it personally, it's as if you were 3,000 worlds away from it. And, and for me, the critical point in this line is as if. As if. It's as if you are 3,000 miles away from it. You're not 3,000 miles away from it, but it can feel like that. Right? We might feel like we're waiting for our life, but we're not. Life is happening. 
whether we know it or not. This is it. So when we talk about self-practice or self-discipline, we aren't talking about necessarily just wrenching ourself to the cushion, although that, you know, happens at times, that needs to happen. We're talking, we're not talking about feeling bad about ourselves when we can't do it. I think what is most important when talking about the subject is getting in touch and somehow staying in touch with what is it that brings us to practice? Why are we here? And so in Buddhism, we talk about um, what's called bodhicitta. I don't know, I've, I've spoken about that too much. When bodhicitta literally means wisdom mind. And, um, and it's really the aspiration to wake up. And, and it's, as I was thinking about the quality of what bodhicitta is, it's really hard to describe it. But it's, it's like one of these things, we know it when we feel it. In that sense, it is a feeling, a feeling tone. It's an energy rather than necessarily a thought. Right? This, this impulse, this desire to investigate this life. And not just for ourselves, uh, but for all beings. And, and so if it's an energy, if it's a feeling tone, the question becomes, why is it that we don't feel it at times? What is it that's blocking that? And of course, from a Buddhist point of view, it's greed. It's desire, you know, greed. It's all of our aversions, our dislikes, our hatred, our anger. And it's our self-deception. It's our delusions, our ignorance. And, and so when those, when that self-energy dominates, it seems that bodhicitta becomes blocked. And so the practice is about asking, how is it that can, that can be more liberated? How is that that energy that's already there on some level, how can that be freed, freed up? That TV keeps creeping up further and further. I hear it going crunk. crunk. Maybe we can pull that. Give it a try. Yeah, just. So I was thinking about, you know, what is it, how is it, why is it that that energy inside of myself gets blocked at times? Why is it that my motivation for practice sometimes uh, wanes, you know? What's, what's going on there? And it's really linked to uh, certain mind states. Of course, the easiest one to talk about is busyness. When we're consumed with so many things in our life, it is difficult to allow those other energies to come up, those pure mind states. And so it can be the constant to-do list. It can be all the things 
that, you know, the constant taking up of more projects, it can be much more difficult to get at mind states that block our bodhicitta. And so I think part of our practice is to touch into what is it that's hampering us, obstructing our bodhicitta. And it it may sound like a daunting project, right, to sort of get a hold of all those things and to understand that. But I think it's empowering when we do. When we bring, you know, oftentimes we talk about the discursive mind in Zen as being problematic, you know, like the discriminating intellectual discursive mind as this is the problem, you know. But I think this is not the case. You know, it often gets a bad rap. Um, we talk about the limits of the intellect, of the discerning mind, but we, I think, um, in that misunderstanding, think that our job is to stop thinking about things, to just put it all aside. But, you know, discernment is an important part of the path, becoming skillful about how to look at our life with some objectivity and say, okay, and even if we're not going to change something, at least know the territory that we're dealing with, even if we're not ready to change something. And that can be quite empowering to take responsibility for this life using our minds. And Dogen talked about this in, his, in one of his essays about bodhicitta. He said this, he said, we in, invariably employ the discerning mind to arouse bodhicitta, the enlightened mind. Bodhi is the Indian word, which means the way or what is true. And chitta is an Indian word, which we call the discerning mind. He says, without the discerning mind, we could not give rise to the enlightened mind. I'm not saying that the discerning mind is the enlightened mind. Rather, we give rise to the enlightened mind by means of the discerning mind. Giving rise to the enlightened mind not only means vowing to take all sentient beings across to the other shore before one has taken oneself, but it also means actively engaging in the task. Sheldon, could you just push the thing up? Because this is... <laughs> I feel like it's a ticking time bomb. There we go. Okay. Thank you. All the way. It's going to still keep going. Yeah. Until it stops. There we go. There we go. Okay, thank you. So he ends that by saying, actively engaging in the task. Not being passive. And this is one of the dangers of Sangha practice. Is that someone else will run the sittings. Someone else will clean the bathrooms. Someone else will give the talks arrange the flowers. All we have to do is just show up. This is one of the dangers of group practice. It's no longer about us and our responsibility. 
I remember years ago reading a study, and I'm sure you've all heard of this, about the likelihood of receiving help when someone was having a heart attack, for example. And they studied um, how likely it was to, to receive help on a busy city street, say in New York City. And what they found was that the there was a correlation between the more people that were around, the less likely you were to get help because the mentality was somebody else will take care of it. There are plenty of people. I've got things I have to do, you see? And so there's plenty of people around. I just can kind of tunnel vision and keep going. But in more rural areas, it was like no one else is around. It's my job. I've got to take care of this. And so in this case, a monk named Echo comes to Hogan and he asks, I am Echo. What is Buddha? Hogan says, you are Echo. It's an interesting way to kind of phrase a question. I am Echo. What is Buddha? It, when I heard Kapla Roshi talk on this koan, um, there's a recording of him talking about this koan. Um, he said that most likely the reason it was phrased this way was because Hogan had about 500 monks in his training hall at any time. And you know, can imagine coming into Doksan and having 500 people that you have to see. You're probably not going to remember everybody's name, you know, and everyone's practice. So this is sort of what we do. We ask that if you're newer to practice, you say what you're working on, you know, when you come into Doksan. But in this case, he says, I am Echo. That's his name. What? And then he asks this question, what is Buddha? And so we encounter this question constantly in the Zen literature. What is Buddha? Here's a couple of examples. UT, the premier, Asked Master Tao Tong, what is Buddha? The master called abruptly, your excellency. Yes, answered the premier. Then the master said, what else do you search for? What is Buddha? Someone else asked Master Chao Chao, what is Buddha? Chao Cho said, what are you? I think it's good to remember that no matter how opaque or how poetic or how seemingly irrelevant these teachings appear, it's always about this, about you, this moment. It's never somewhere out there. That's what you will always want to keep in mind when you're reading the teachings. How is this pointing back here? me. Who are you? So sometimes these monks would just ask these questions. They would just um, kind of like a game, believe it or not. They would go to these teachers and they would say something and they would ask a question, maybe hoping to kind of get an interesting response. You know, like, what's this master going to say? Um, it, it kind of, it, when thinking about this, it kind of um, feels a little bit like 
uh, for those of you who have come across the old Zoltar machines, do, do, do you know what those are? These old, um, uh, you, you see them in arcades or in carnivals, uh, maybe on the um, boardwalk in, in uh, Coney Island, right? And it's this box with a glass and behind the glass is Zoltar. And he's got a, he's an animatronic guy and he's got this turban on and, and you've put your quarter in and, and press the button and he comes alive and then he welcomes you and he says, hi, how are you doing? And you will now receive your fortune. And you know, the card spits out and it gives you your fortune for the day. So I sometimes think of these monks coming to these masters as just like putting the quarter in the Zoltar machine, you know? And I, I think that students here do that sometimes, like just asking questions, like what's Teshin going to say, right? Like it's, it's, it's like people come here just as a novelty, um, you know, what's this Zen thing about? But this practice, this practice is about the heart. It's, it's, that's what taking refuge is about. This is why sometimes these, um, sometimes where our questions come from are much more important than the actual question itself. The where, that's the bodhicitta, rising. If it's an, if you're working on a koan, for example, and it's an intellectual puzzle to you, you're, it's, you're, you're never going to get anywhere. This is about the heart, resolving that. And that's where this monk is coming from, that show. He is heart-centered. He's really asking. And so he comes to Hogan and he says, what is Buddha? And I'm sure this monk has heard a thousand times this question and an answer. What is Buddha? And so he isn't really asking for another teaching. He's not asking for an answer. He's done with teachings. He's at the end. He's done being taught. It's past that point. This encounter with Hogan, there is no separation between him and Hogan. Like when our hearts are really into something, there is no room for discursive thinking. There is no division. All is one. The last thing he would need, and it would be a disservice to him, is to give him an explanation. It would be a total disservice to him to explain Buddha. You know, a good teacher in Zen doesn't really explain that much. It's not because they're like politicians and sort of like evading questions, although it can feel that way. It's not that. It's that that it's understood that the student needs to investigate these things themselves, right? So they're thrown back onto their self. What is Buddha? Find out. Find out. You know, if we want to know what the real truth is. 
you know, which is different than this, <laughs> this phrase that we hear these days, doing your own research. Have you all heard this, you know, the, you know, it's especially on the, in the QAnon world, I do my own research, you know, I got to get on the internet and do your own research, right? You know, inter yeah, experts be damned, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I, I know more about, uh, Viral, virology than any expert because I've done my own research on the internet, right? Um, that kind of research, you know, that's done late at night in the basement <laughs> on your old computer searching for the most conspiratorial thing you can find, right? That's not the kind of investigation we're talking about here, right? This is, we're not going onto the internet. We're going, we're going, this is a little corny, but we're going in the internet, internet. We're, we're searching inside of us. And that's a long process. That takes a long time. But it's up to us. And so it's easy to assume that when we hear dialogues like this in this koan, where the student says something and the teacher says something back and, you know, and then boom, the student comes to enlightenment and like that some sort of miracle has happened. Oh, by the way, I wanna, before, <laughs> before I move on, I it just, I, I just uh, remembered hearing a um, report last week on NPR about conspiracies theorists, you know, and the overlap between spiritual seekers and conspiracy theorists and how easy one can bleed into another and what the reporter and the interviewee were talking about was the commonalities between the two, right? That there's a skepticism of conventional knowledge, that there's like this, for example, like in Western medicine, you know, or science, sort of a doubt in that an emphasis on finding your own truth, right? Finding the hidden meaning behind things. And this is all present in QAnon people and as well as in people that do spiritual practice and alternative healing and all these things. So we have to be really careful because it can bleed into one into the other. But so, so we can, we can, when we hear a dialogue like this, monk says, what is Buddha? Master says, you are a Cho. Monk has enlightenment experience. It's, it's easy to assume that this is sort of like a miracle that happens, but it's not at all like that. It would, it's kind of like, that would be like watching a PhD student come across the to the podium to receive their, I don't know, their diploma, whatever it is, and and the teach and the and the and the person doing the ceremony hands the PhD the, the diploma to the student, right? It, it would be like thinking that the PhD student, um, the person handing that student the paper, was the one who did the work. Like that's when it happened. Boom, PhD done, right? But of course it's not like that. 
It's not like that. It's years of hard work that's unseen, that's back there, right? So we hear these dialogues, but what we don't see is all of the commitment that this student made day in, day out of practice. As it says in the opening preface, no one wants to talk about the sweating horses of the past. They only want to emphasize the achievement that crowns the age. In other words, we rarely want to talk about all that work behind the achievement. All we want to see is the final result. And so Zen is going inward, facing our minds, doing the hard work, without any time frames in mind, without thinking about the finished product, taking up a regular sitting practice, a koan if that's our path, working with our teacher, with the support of our sangha, coming to a retreat when we can. But knowing all along that we're responsible, knowing that that's difficult. And so, this koan, um, Master Hogan, You are Echo. He's, he's pointing to something very beautiful. He's really showing us all the truth. What is he showing? What is that beauty? It's, it's sort of a beauty that's always around us. Last Tuesday night, we took up an essay by Zen teacher Norman Fisher, and he talked about the Shogogenzo, which is Dogen's masterwork. And Fisher says this about the Shogogenzo. He says, Shogogenzo presents a radically unique view of Buddhism and of Zen as not being a retreat from the a trans, uh, a, being a retreat or a transcendence of ordinary reality, which is essentially dukkha, suffering, a veil of tears to be overcome but instead the full embrace of the human world as the world of nirvana. It's the full embrace of this human world, as painful as that world is. He says, for Dogen, the ultimate standpoint of Dharma is simply the full affirmation of our ordinary human world of attachment and aversion and their consequences. It is precisely through appreciation of this veil of tears that the Buddha, Buddha's illumination shines in us. And so when it, I, last Tuesday when we read that, as I was commenting on that, what came to mind was when we truly take up Zen practice and this inward turning, we regularly begin to still the mind, spending our time doing zazen, daily zazen. We begin to have these moments of stillness that begin to come into our life. And it's, it's sort of like these bright moments of stillness, this dynamic kind of stillness that comes in. And when it does, we encounter these moments of where we experience the wholeness of things, 
Like it can be very subtle, you know, of the beauty within the ordinary. And then, and then as that expands in our life, what begins to happen is it's not just, you know, the steam rising from our cup of tea that's so beautiful, you know, which before was overlooked and then now appreciated, but then it becomes even the difficult moments somehow are experienced as whole. Like our minds begin to tune, uh, attune to not only what was overlooked before, but also the more difficult things that were fully inside of our awareness are now experienced differently. We see a beauty in them. And what we experienced, it's because what we're experiencing is no longer bound by the concepts of and the biases of the labels of negativity. Like this is bad, this is ugly, this is not what I want. And so we don't need to dismiss those things. It's like, here they are in their fullness. And somehow, I'm not sure exactly what's happened, but it's like, that is whole. It's fine. Even though it's difficult, even though it's painful, it's still beautiful. And that is a wonderful experience to have. And as I said on Tuesday night, if we're, if we're not having those experiences here and there in our practice, then we should probably be sitting more, you know? So ending with Master Secho's verse on this koan, he says, in the river country, the spring wind isn't blowing. Deep within the flowers, partridges are calling. At the three-tiered dragon gate, where even the waves are high, fishes become, or carps become dragons. This is that old allusion to, you know, the image of a carp leaping up the waterfall. This is an old Zen image of a carp leaping up as as we know the carps swim upstream to to a spawn but this is a image of this self-effort this effort that we have to make in our practice to leap the waterfall to turn into that dragon right which is a good thing in zen dragons are good things and yet he says at the end yet fools still go on scooping out the evening pond water How is it that we have this potential to become a dragon? Or as Hawkwind says about this comment, realizing that we already are a dragon. And yet, instead of realizing that for ourselves, we spend our time scooping out pond water. Right? What is that for you? Obviously, that can be different for everybody. What is that for you? that scooping out that pond water. 
So thank you for listening today. And let's stop here and we'll recite the four vows.